You are listening to Spacetime Mind, a podcast by two philosophy professors, Richard Brown and Pete Mandick, who talk about philosophy, science, and all sorts of other stuff. Please be advised that this podcast contains strong language and abstract ideas not suitable for all intelligent life forms. What the hell am I looking at? When does this happen in the movie? Now. You're looking at now, sir. Everything that happens now is happening now. What happened to then? The past then. When? Just now. We're at now now. Go back to then. When? Now. Now? Now. I can't. Why? We missed it. When? Just now. When will then be now? Soon. My calculations are correct. When this baby hits 88 miles per hour, you're going to see some serious shit. Somehow, somehow, do a Jedi mind meld. In I think that we're we are now recording like our twenty seventh hour. Wow, FaceTime. We've been laying down a lot of fresh beats. It only feels like forever. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's a still a finite number. It's still it's a finite. A very large, a very large finite number. I'm Pete Mandic from. William Patterson University, and it's raining here in New Jersey. Yes, I'm Richard Brown. It's also raining here in Brooklyn, as a matter of fact. Uh, wow. Cold, dreary day. I got to say, every time the weather is just slightly unpleasant, I get completely depressed about climate change. I'm like, yeah. this is it. We're the last generation. We're the last generation. <laughs> <laughs> this is it. Hey, by well, the way, I want to try an experiment today. Yeah. I'm going to set an alarm. Okay. A 30-minute alarm. Oh, crap. And when that alarm goes off, we will know it's been 30 minutes. Okay. <laughs> uh, why are we doing that? We go long. We go long. Okay, so we're trying to tighten it up. And also, we go, uh, we get breathless. And it we makes get... it hard. It makes it hard for the editor to find a place to break. Oh, I see. You're trying to post some order from the um, standpoint of an editor. Yeah, I'm thinking about the editor. You know, now that you brought that up, I was figuring that it was about time that we talk about time on space I really time. want to talk about time. <laughs> I want to talk about time, too. By the way, yeah. I was listening to um, one of our uh, sisters, our sister podcast, New Books in Philosophy. Do you, uh, Are you familiar with that one? Uh, Carrie does that one. Yeah, I like yeah, that. Carrie Finger and Rob Talese. And, uh, I only listen to the Carrie side of it, to be honest with you, because she does all the mind, cool mind stuff. Yeah, she the does. One, yeah, the Rob seems like he's more does like political stuff or something, and that's exactly. not interesting. It's just I have not infinite time. Right. He does political uh, philosophy and ethics, and then uh, allegedly some epistemology, and then Carrie does the metaphysics and uh, philosophy of mind and philosophy of science. Anyway, the the reason I bring it up. Is just yesterday I was, or yeah, yesterday I was listening to the the one with uh, Britt Brogard. Okay. And she, and she was talking about oh, her she book. She has that transient truths that book. Right. She was talking about that transient truths book, and a lot oh. of it gets into time. 
So yeah. a lot of these arguments about time, uh, you know, on the one hand, you've got um, straightforward metaphysics of time. And on the other hand, there's this philosophy of language stuff about, like, what's the right way to think about propositions? Are they eternal? Or are they timeless stuff? And that, and that gets into things about uh, linguistics and whether, you know, we have tense operators in language or whether instead, like, what's really going on is some kind of quantifier. And then, of course, there's, like, cool psychology stuff. So, you know, maybe we'll have a whole bunch of different episodes about time. But there's a lot of stuff about just the, the, the phenomenology of time, the way the mind processes time or the experience of time. Yeah. Uh, well, who knows if we'll have time to talk about all these interesting <laughs> topics about time. <laughs> I'm going to be doing this all day, folks, so you may as well just set <laughs> The bad uh, jokes are the know, best you jokes. You know what's interesting, too, is because I think, I think this is right. So what's also interesting is all these really cool connections um, between views about space, which are you can have analogs to in, in, in temporal as well, and yeah. also views about modality, which you know we've been talking about. So uh, the package of views that I would like is... Um, if possible, is a kind of presentism uh, that has only the present moment as real. And uh, then in the modal world, um, a kind of actualism where the only things that are real are the actually existing things. And so those two views, actualism and presentism, uh, wait a minute. Are, are, not, are, are nice. I like them. I would I like you didn't like actualism. I love actualism. Because you're all, you know, you you love modality. I do. And, I take uh, modality seriously, but um, that, <laughs> well, that, that's a different question. So, yeah, I mean, these are different questions. So, look, I, I mean, we've been through this before, so. Uh, but look, let me just uh, be super about, clear. The thing about modality was mostly I was, I was kind of shocked and mortified that um, people who endorse crazyism wouldn't uh, also – sort of be amendable to this kind of crazy view uh -huh. um, uh, because it just seems like one of the cr one of the possible crazy options. I mean, yes, it's crazy to say that that um, everything necessarily exists and that S5 uh, is is the appropriate logic of, of for settling metaphysical disputes. Um, my point wasn't that I believe that. My point is is why why is it that a view that's crazy but motivated by a priori methodology is not a serious contender, whereas a view that's crazy but motivated by empirical methodology is a serious or right. worth being serious. That was mostly why okay. I was like defending the view. And also I think it's interesting and I do think that we have an ability to think about um, the truth of counterfactuals in, in, in a way that renders talk about modality interesting and important. Whether and whether what that tracks or what I don't know. But so um, as I also think that it would be nice to defend the view that What's real is what's actual and present. Um, whether you have, can be forced away from that is what I kind of think is interesting. But but if you are if you're king of philosophy, if you get to just by fiat <laughs> make it true, you would uh, you'd pick presentism <laughs> and actualism. So that covers that covers time and that covers modality. But what about space? Yeah, see that's the interesting thing. So. I was reading this um, paper by Dean Zimmerman, um, and uh, I actually forget what the name. I don't even know if this is a new paper or old paper. Cause but he's just, a big-time presentist. Yeah, he's exactly. That's why I like I like I like him. Um, also Christian. Uh, yeah, you know this 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 view does, and all, one of the defenders of presentism is William Lane Craig. So I'm not in great company here. 
Um, uh, and I don't want to def I wouldn't want to defend the the view that they do, especially what Craig's view of the neo Lorentzian or whatever that kind of strange view that there is some like absolute reference frame um, uh, which is object and that's God's reference frame. I, I, as far as I understand Craig's view, that's kind of what his position is. So I, I and you know whatever. Like I said before in our previous episode, I'm agnostic about theism. So I, I don't mind exploring um, religious views like that. I don't really, you know, think there's a lot of reason to believe them. That's why the agnosticism. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yes, I would I would. Uh, so anyway, yeah, I was reading this paper of his where where he was. Um, I forgot why we. I, what brought I that asked up you about now. space. You told me about your. <laughs> that's view. right. Okay. Thank package. I started thinking <laughs> about something completely different. Pete. You're going to be distracted. Um, so anyway, he was he. I think I'm not exactly clear at the moment what his conclusion was. I think his conclusion was um, substantialism or substantivalism uh -huh. about space is I don't know if required but congenial to uh, presentism. I think that's what he was arguing, but I'm not yeah. sure. So it's not clear to me what to say about space. I guess I, I guess I would say yeah that space is a um, that substantivalism is a common sense view. Yeah. I'm also convinced by uh, like holographic principles and sort of thinking about string theory that that it's oh quite an open possibility that space is not fundamental, um, uh, not a fundamental feature of our world, but an yeah. emergent feature of it. So I, I I'm not space is space probably. I, I mean, it's harder to give up time than it is to give up space, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, space, you can make sense. There are models in which space just sort of emerges and it's not fundamental. It's not clear to me you can do the same thing with time, and I think that, but but it maybe it is. I'm so I'm not I'm not sure. Well, you know, talking so about you're a relationalist, right? Is that what you is? Yeah, like uh, I, I gotta say, my man is Poincaré. Uh, Poincaré, uh -huh, yeah. Hardcore, um, you know, and Leibniz is pretty cool on this topic. Yeah. As far you know, as far as packages go, you know, you might look to uh, to Einstein. And you know, he, and and then it, it, your your package might just oppose Einstein. So Einstein glues time and space together. Yeah. And, um, you know, time is is relative. Whether whether two events are are happening at the same time or not is going to be something that's relative to a, a reference frame. And similarly, where things are, or how 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 long they are, right? So there's like um, as things are uh, moving, there's um, uh, spatial contraction, right? Length contraction is uh, is part of the Lorentz transformation, right? So that's a kind of um, relativity uh, about both. But it's you know it, it's really weird because. But you know, so here's but see right. So Einstein, as far as I mean, look, this is these 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 things are deep. But as far as I know, Einstein, there are two different ways of talking about this stuff. And one way of doing it is that anything that's sort of um, uh, not invariant under the Lorentz transformations just isn't a real feature of, of the objects. So, I mean, there's ways of reading Einstein where he says, yeah, well, length just is not like a real feature of um, a real property that, that physical objects have. And the reason is because it's not invariant. Um, the things that are real, and this is, I think, the idea behind the, the people who say that rather than calling it relativity theory, you should call it invariance theory or invariantism or Rather, folk, the idea is not that there's a bunch of relativity going on here. The idea is that there's something that's invariant, um, something that stays the same under certain transformations. And in the other stuff, well, we could debate about whether that's really real or not. I don't know. So, but wait uh, a minute. So, um, 
so here are th some things that change under the transformations: length, mass. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. So, so I've got a spaceship, and and I would have thought it was real, that it you know it had a certain mass, and that it had a certain length, and uh, you tell me that neither of those things are real. Well, they're relativistically real. Oh, okay. Yeah, there are quantities that you'll. I mean, what is it they're talking about? In a certain inertial frame of reference or whatever, you'll measure certain. Uh, you'll come up with certain measurements. Um, uh -huh. And so that's what those things are talking about. If you make this measurement, you'll get this number for mass. If you make that measurement, you'll get that number for length. Someone in a different that in a in a frame of reference moving relative to you will make yeah. different measurements. Um, okay. So it's an open question then, like what thing? What's the underlying thing like? Uh, because really, all they're talking about is the kinds of measurements that observers would make. Um, and yeah. that, that, I guess this this again gets at this um, thing from Einstein: the difference between uh, a theory of principle versus a constructive theory. Which, you know, I again, I'm not really a super history history of science guy, but I like I read some of this stuff. So. Um, as far as I understand it, like one, one kind of theory starts with just giving a, a, a sort of mathematical description, a principle, like you know the like the principle of relativity, um, or Einstein's uh, uh, claim that the laws of physics are the same in every um, reference frame, and they're invariant under that transformation, the laws of physics, and um, so that you can't distinguish, you know. Um, anyway, anyway, okay, so. Uh, that, and then that you just, but you don't give any kind of explanations. You just give some equations and explanations. Uh, yeah. Excuse me, equations and descriptions. And then that constrains the kind of theory that you end up being able to produce. And then that's contrasted with um, a constructive theory where you actually try to do some explaining of how the thing that you observe comes out to be true. Yeah. Um, so, and the, the, uh, the way I understand this, like, people view like a Lorenz's physics itself as a kind of constructive theory because he was trying to give an explanation for why you would see these um, these kinds of in these kinds of invariances or these transformations that you could make um, whereas uh, some people view Einstein as not trying to do that but rather just trying to give some general principles that constrain your theory and then construct a theory based on that so let me let me ask you let me shift slightly and ask you a question about presentism, because you know I, I go back and forth about presentism. Some, sometimes I feel like especially when I'm uh, meditating, you know, I focus yeah. on uh, and I, I teach a class on this too next semester. Yeah, you mentioned that. That sounds interesting. Um, so when I'm in that frame of mind, like I really become <coughs> a presentist. Like this yeah. is what's really real. Um, right. But then other times I think like okay, um, I, I think it. Like I'm attracted to actualism too. Yeah. And one one thing that goes along with actualism, not, it doesn't have to, but one thing that goes along with theism is there's only one actual future. Right. So, uh, if, but anyway, but so here's 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 something uh, again. Not if the future is open. There are many possible futures, but only one of them will be actual. Yeah. I yeah, but if you're that's... an actualist, the only the only possibilities are actual. But anyway, let me let me. Well, that's not true. <laughs> That's not. I said no. you didn't have to go this way. But that's one way to go. Okay. Let, let me put you, <laughs> give you this thing that, that bothers me about presentism. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. is kind of like a specious present kind of point. So, yeah. So, so if you, so one way of thinking about um, that it seems uh, smeared out or something is that yeah, the idea? Yeah. Exactly. So one way of putting presentism is that the that the only um, the only time that's real is this single instant 
But yeah. it, but if you think about lots of things that we experience, it's pretty clear that we don't just experience single instance. So for example, you can see my hand move, yeah. or you can like right now you're hearing that I'm saying the word asparagus, right? Um, I did hear that. So it was, <laughs> it was so asparagus has a lot of syllables in it, and there's a sense right. in which you're you're hearing like right now you're hearing asparagus, right? Asparagus is in the present. Right. So asparagus, as far as time goes, it's it's got more temporal extent than a single instant. And same with motion, like you're perceiving that my hand is moving right now. And yeah. w one way to think about motion is being at different locations at different times. Right. So like what counts as now is already going to contain multiple points in time, some of which are earlier than others. Right, I mean, I, so this this to me is there me, a way for the presentist to just like redefine what they mean by the present? They're I, I think this is an interesting question. So, I, but I, it's difficult. So, because I agree with you, I, I feel that uh, specious present stuff as well. I do I do think about this stuff. One thing that we should say is that we want to distinguish the metaphysics from the phenomenology. So one question is like, what what's real? Yeah. Uh, and then what is the phenomenology of temporal passage like, or of time passing like? And um, so I feel the you describing the phenomenology I think very right. well. That's what it feels like. That's how we experience time when we pay attention to it. Not as an instantaneous moment, but as um, uh, an extended little bubble, a kind of thing, a little area, <laughs> which is, you know, I don't want to say the moving spotlight because that has already a bunch of baggage in philosophy when people right. talk about this moving spotlight view, you know. Yeah. Um, but I think Dean Zimmerman kind of captures this in his paper when he talks about this ghostly, uh, ghostly growing block. Um, that there's this kind of idea that, you know, the past is like, there's this kind of fadingness, but there's this glowing edge, this glowing like pre mo thing at the at the forefront of it. Uh -huh. And how long of a moment that is, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I think you're right that the presentist doesn't, doesn't need to be forced into saying it's an instant. But I then, see. of course, you get a slip. I mean, I don't know, though. I'm just like speculating, but then you get a... Um, I think the interesting question of how how accurate or reliable is the phenomenology, since it's it's quite plausible. I mean, not plausible, but it's, I can imagine someone saying that um, the specious present is just the way we represent many instantaneous moments or something like that, yeah. um, and so that that's a a product of the representation of time, right. a subjective represent or experience of time rather than. Um, What's what's real? But I mean, but but you don't want to say that though, because I think one of the the strongest arguments for accepting some kind of presentism is phenomenology. It just right. it just it, that whatever those B theories are or eternalism or I mean, right. I think those are technically separate, but they're like closely related. If if and four dimensionalism as well, technically separate but closely related. Right. Right. That whole like group of stuff, it, it's really hard for them to make sense of how time passes. And and I like this. I mean, I just again, the phenomenology I think is so important here. This is a point that Pryor made a long time ago. I think 
um, when he talks about like, because I don't know, I have migraines, migraines run in my family, so I'm not having one at the moment, but um, if, if you have a migraine headache, it's, it's something that like seems like it lasts over time, right. <laughs> and it's terrible. And it can go in and out. You can like be doing something else and then be like, oh, there's that migraine again. So I feel like, yeah, it's the same migraine. Um, but, but eventually it goes away. Eventually it goes away uh, if you're lucky. And um, it's this incredible relief that comes. Yeah. And so one of, the, it's one of the things that Pryor talks about is, well, what happens when the pain, the headache goes into the past? What happens when when that transition occurs from it being presently hurting to it being in the past that it hurt. And uh, the, 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 the B theories, eternalism, all those theories, they have this weird consequence. Well, that the pain is still exists, you know, still real in some sense. It's got to at least be in some other sense, some attenuated sense. Right. Because it doesn't hurt. <laughs> and if, if it were real, if, it were, if that headache were real, it would still be hurting. But, but clearly it's not hurting me anymore. So it's got to be... If it is real, it's real in a different sense, and I think oh, yeah. that 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 the otherwise that that's an important point that the past headache doesn't hurt us anymore. Now I thought I think Pryor kind of assumes from that automatically, boom. Therefore, presentism. I don't know if that you can do that as quick, but I do think that's kind of an interesting and important point that 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 you have to at least admit a mode of existence that's different and not as important to the as the one that's currently presently existing. And then, of course, you could look at this recent work in, in uh, metaphysics on grounding, and you might wonder if you could tell it. And I, I think there, I've read a paper on this um, recently, some people arguing that you can use, like, Chris McDaniel and their yeah. work, like the work coming out of that uh, weird tradition to talk about the past being grounded in the present and maybe modes of being or something like that. So that's a weird and wacky view, but I think so, it's interesting. So I want to go back to something you said and, and talk about two theories that account for it. Uh, so, you, you know, you, you said there's a, we got to distinguish between uh, the question of the, the phenomenology of time and uh, the metaphysical reality of time. And I think that's right. And once you really think hard about what that uh, might amount to, there's, there's two kinds of theories that I, uh, that I, I I find each of them really compelling. So so one of one of the theories um, says that the the metaphysics is, uh, is uh, a kind of like super small instant. That's what's really real. And the other is some kind of eternalism. But on each of these theories, what you you account for the phenomenology in terms of a kind of representationalism. Just it's just to make it super simple, we, we could call it belief. But if, you know, of course, you're probably going to want to make it more complicated and have different kinds of, of representations than beliefs. But but anyways, just on the simplified version, on the on the instantaneous version, um, what's what's really happening is at this instant you have a belief, and then the belief is that there are more than one instance, uh, w one of which is a past instant that has a, a migraine in it. The other one is an instant that that doesn't have a, a migraine in it. There's a, a sense in which this is a you know kind of a kind of an error theory because right. these in a lot of ways these beliefs are false. They're representing uh, a bunch of stuff. They're representing a bunch of instants that aren't. Is this aren't the, there. Uh, is this is this related to Dennett Stal, Stal, Stalinian or Orwellian? It's stuff? very Dennettian in flavor. It, yeah. It's very much like that, right? Uh -huh. um, but the other way to go, you know, once you see that that is at least a, a possibility, another way to go 
uh, is the same kind of story on the representation phenomenology side of things, but now the metaphysics is eternalist. So um, there are all these different, uh, metaphysically, there's all these different Richard stages, and each of them have their own beliefs. Right. And, and, and one of them is there still believing, and correctly believing, that it has a migraine headache. Um, and uh, the other, there's another Richard stage that is believing, and correctly believing, that it used to be having a... Uh, and, and uh, but no longer is having a um, migraine headache. So yeah, but, I mean, you, what's, that what's doesn't really, really do justice to have having and not having a headache, does it? I mean, that's not what you're saying, is it? <laughs> well, there's a bunch of Richards, and and uh, some of them uh, are still having the headache, and will always have the headache. Um, <laughs> you're yeah, the one you know, right here. Yeah, right. But anyways, sucks. so there's, these, there's these, <laughs> both of these theories w would be would be consistent with the phenomenology. Well, them, right, you've got this representation of what's going on and, and, yeah. and, and the way things seem just is the way you represent them. Um, and then now, uh, but the metaphysics are, are, are radically different. In the one case, the metaphysics is that the only instant that is really real is this is the single point in time. Yeah. And uh, the other one, it has this infinity of, of, of points in time with an infinity of like uh, Richard stages you know, um, you started, you mentioned uh, Britt and her work at the beginning of this. Yeah. I haven't, Britt, Britt. I haven't read her, uh, I haven't read that book, to be honest with you. Um, but I have read her paper on this. Um, I think, oh, I know. I forget I'm supposed to do homework before these shows. Um, I think her <laughs> paper was in The Monist. Um, I could be totally wrong about that, but it's called uh, Presentist for Dimensionalism. Um, and it's a cool view that she's that she defends. And I have you. Do you know this paper? Or do you, uh, I, mean, I think I think I, she, it's related to it. Sorry, I, I have come across it. I really don't remember how it's supposed to go, though. Do you? I, I think I do remember the. I mean, I know we should talk to her someday, and she could yeah, tell definitely. us because uh, she probably knows this stuff better than we do <laughs> since it's her work. <laughs> um, but I, I think the idea. I mean, I don't know. I w would interpret it in terms of the grounding kind of stuff that I was just talking about, but I don't know if she would want to assimilate it to that. But that the idea is that there's a uh, that that the four dimensionalism um, is just the idea that you can you know talk about these pastimes, refer to them, and and that kind of stuff, and that they they but they don't have to exist in the same way that the present time does, and they exist in a way by being related to the present time, um, uh, and I, I mean, I don't know. So I, 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 again, I would tell the story about grounding that they're, that they're ground, but I don't know if that's the way she would want to do it. But yeah. I think that she has an interesting. So the thing that I remember most clearly, and I'm sorry if I'm butchering that <laughs> first part of it, but the thing I remember most clearly is like uh, what she tries to say about um, special relativity and the kinds of objections to presentists. Uh, that comes from thinking about relativity theory, and and really, you know, general relativity is like I think Zimmerman's right that that's what we should be worried about. But anyway, so um, as far as I understand, the kind of a uh, uh, response that she's sketching there is that you know if you take uh, here's how she presents the objection to um, presentism is if I'm rem and again I could be misremembering this, but I think this is right. So suppose that you know. Here I am, and I list a bunch of stuff that I think is currently existing, and um, 
uh, you're one of them, right? So, and I also list like, you know, my tea jar right here, my jar of tea. So, but you're moving relative to me. So, uh, some event which is in your past relative to you is not going to be in my presently existing thing. Excuse me. Something which is present relative to you because you're moving. So, we're right. going to have different time slices here. Right, right. right. Um, uh, Something's going to be real in your frame of reference that's not real in my frame of reference. And so, therefore, it looks like uh, presentism is committed to a contradiction, a formal contradiction, namely that um, this certain thing, let's call it the Battle of Gettysburg, just to have like a thing we're talking about. This particular event is not real because it's not in my um, present moment, and so, therefore, not existing. But you are, and it's in your frame of reference so it's also is real since you're present you're real and present in my frame of reference so therefore it looks like it both is and isn't the case that this thing the battle of gettysburg or whatever it is yeah um, is, is is real it exists and so that that's a one way of putting the uh, our, the objection from special relativity um so and, and her and i think the interesting response that she develops and then so what i like about it is it doesn't require this move that other people are going to make, this neo-Lorentzian move that there is like an absolute frame of reference, an, an absolutely correct objective frame of reference. So the idea is that um, that she invokes what they call space-like separation between the events, um, whereby that means that they can't causally interact. So this Battle of Gettysburg is um, is not something that, uh, since you know nothing can travel faster than the speed of light, it's not something that I can know about. It's not something that's in that is real uh, or can affect the frame of reference that I happen to be in. And so, the, she, her conclusion is there's nothing contradictory with saying that it's not real in my frame of reference, but it is in your frame of reference because you, what's what's objectively real is just. Um, different frames of reference uh, and yeah. if they're separated by in a space-like way so that they can't interact with each other um, then you, there's just no there's just no contradiction or problem that arises especially if you have her kind of ghostly four-dimensionalism stuff in there that lets you still you know do all the stuff that you want to do I guess I don't see what I don't see what's presentist about it I hear it as I, I get the four-dimensionalist part of it I don't see what's supposed to be presentist about it uh, well, it's not. It's not the case that it um, that this thing exists. It's not real in in my frame of reference, and that's true. I mean, that the but only things that exist are what are real. Existing. in some sense. It's still real in some sense. So that's you know that's her that's her take on the four. Uh, that's her argument yeah. that you know you can't just have a three dimensionalism. You can't just go. I know I would want to have a uh, try to have some kind of. Pure three-dimensionalism. I don't know if that's possible, but um, right. Like so that's, she does give up a little bit, but it's not. I mean, these things aren't real in in any sense that should matter or bother. Um, when, a I'm a, when I'm in my um, presentist mood, I would say, you know, I want more than she's given me. That doesn't seem like presentism. Well, if if you say if you say just, I mean, again, if you put it in terms of grounding, then why? How is that more than presentism? If if you say uh, what's the ground? Maybe I don't get what the ground is. What's the ground here? Um, the ground is the present. The, so the, the ground... The, the things contains, which are real uh, now. 
and that's not it's not Richard's present versus Pete's present. There is a just some absolute present, non non relative. No, I think she's. I mean, I think that's the relative. I mean, that's the you know why it's still in the framework of general relativity, special relativity is that there's no absolutes. Um, there's no absolute present. There's uh, there's no objective. That's the nice thing about this kind of move that she's making. I think is that you don't have to say there's some objective time uh, uh, a reference frame from which this other stuff follows. So there are. I mean, I, mean, I, I had to reread the paper. I, I once I, again we're talking about stuff we haven't read. <laughs> I have read it. No, I have read oh. it. I just haven't read it uh, in a timely manner. <laughs> by the way, by the way. Uh, Speaking of time, yeah, um, we oh, that was uh, half we an hour. A point. So th we're we're gonna take a virtual break. We will be right back. Okay, that was our break. And now, uh, now that we're back after the break, ladies and uh, gentlemen. Oh, that was the break? Yeah, so we hit the break point. And that's where the editor is going to insert like a pretty kick-ass musical break. Yeah, so right, you're gonna Brian. and you're gonna do it. Um, give them a little bit more because you get these little teases, uh, but they're only a quick second. I think they're a minute. They're a minute. Um, yeah, something, something. But let me ask you about the flow of time, because some people that are presentists say that. Um, what they oppose about the non-presentists, they call them eternalists or whatever. I mean, I, I just I smear I smush eternalism and four-dimensionalism all together. I know you're supposed to separate them, but yeah, uh, I'm you're supposed like to that. separate them. But anyway, um, um, the, you know the the B theory people, they get accused of, uh, and maybe correctly, of not really uh, allowing for there to be any flow of time. Yeah, and there's this argument I, that I'm familiar with through Ted Sider, I don't know if he originates the argument, but he says, you know, think about it. it. So this is an argument against the coherence of the idea that time flows. 
think about it. She's like, think about it. That's the argument. End of argument. No, that's the premise one. For real, think about it. Whoa. The first premise is get your head out of your ass. Second premise, think about it. Third premise is wow. if, if time flows, it would have to flow at a rate. Uh, now, what is a rate? A rate is, um, is uh, some change with respect to time. So, for example, if, you're, if, if your car is moving at a rate that's faster than my car, you are, um, you're changing positions with respect to t your spatial positions with respect to time uh, in a way that exceeds my change of spatial positions with respect to time. Right. And if you're, if you're cooling down, you're changing temperatures, you've got different temperatures uh, at different times. So rates of cooling down or rates of, uh, of motion are always going to be relative to time. If time flows, you might wonder, at what rate does it flow? And you're tempted to say, well, one second per second. Yeah. <laughs> but wait a minute. Um, one second per second isn't a rate. One, one second per second is just a fraction. Right. And it is the number one. But the number one is not a rate. <laughs> so you might say, like, oh, okay, let's do it this way. Um, one moment per second. Let's do it. No, no, no. Let's introduce hypertime. Yeah, hypertime. So maybe this is what you were saying. So t time flows at a rate at, with respect to hypertime. But now it, then, then the next the, the next stage of the argument is just to to it becomes a regress argument. Yeah. Does hypertime flow? If so, it, there must be some hyper hypertime. And then does that flow? Then we've got hyper hyper hypertime. And uh, off we go to uh, an infinite regress. Right. And this, I don't know, I, I think that's, don't you, you like turtles all the way down, so you I seem not to ever be phased by an infinite regress argument. I love turtles all the way down, and I simultaneously am living on the lowest turtle. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, I am no, the but, lowest no, but turtle. No, but seriously, no, but uh, you know, um, some if, if you care about grounding or if you care Cantor, about explanation. With Cantor's uh, continuum hypothesis. Um, what? Some kind of analogy with Cantor and the continuum hypothesis can help us make sense of what it means to say that there are um, collections of things uh, which are, you know, outstrip other collections of things that don't seem intuitively okay. like they can be outstripped. So I'm not saying that that's a model of time. What I'm saying is that we know what it means to be hyper-infinite in a sense, um, or in other words, to be uncountable. Uh, what, it, what it means is simply to have the cardinality um, of the continuum. But look, suppose uh, I say and, infinity and, is great. Well, hold on, though. And so probably yeah. that the cardinality of the continuum is probably closely related to time. When, I mean, I would say when you... Uh, uh, not, 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 and so, so, I don't know that. That, what's the problem with having a, a hyper time, or in other words, a, um, a higher level of time in which you you can make sense or or count the moments of time uh, of non hyper time, and then the relativity thing. I mean, you, why does there have to be a metric? Because really, I think what Sider's point of his question is about what what metric is there? Is time is supposed to be a metric? So then, what metric can you use for the metric? Um, what what thing what the, the limits or marks off the clicks? Well, um, the, way I, the way I hear this infinite regress argument, and this is the way I hear most infinite regress arguments, it, it's not that you're positing infinity. 
and Infinity is bad. By the way, I think Infinity is bad. Yeah. <laughs> but but I can play along. Like I think Infinity is great. It's terrific. Yeah. But, um, it's bad when what you're looking for is grounding, or when you're what you're looking for is explanation, right? So um, if, if you want you you want an explanation of uh, in in what consists time flowing, and if you say, well, it's it's changing yeah. with respect to hyper time, you uh-huh. you haven't answered the question yet. Well, I, well, what is what is the flow of hyper time consist in? And you say, well, it's hyper hyper time. Yeah, well, like, yeah, well, well what, what's that, right? But that's, but that's the same thing that you could say, look, what does it mean to be uncountable? Well, it means that you can't be put into a one-to-one relationship with the natural numbers. Yeah, but, um, that's, but, that's, but then you say, well, what does that mean? Well, that's what it means. No, 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 it means no, that no, there's no, that, you, you can't be put into a one-to-one. No regress. What? There's no infinite regress there, right? So yes, there is because then there's a higher level of infinity, which is larger than that, which I, is the which is the, uh, even um, so it can't be put into a one-to-one correspondence with the with the thing which is larger than the natural numbers, and then there's one that's larger than that, which cannot be put into a one-to-one wait, wait, correspondence. Wait, slow down. Let, let's so just there's an infinite down. sequence wait. of these. Oh, slow down. Let's talk about car like so like you know <laughs> just focusing on one to one correspondence right this yeah. is really like if a, if a student asked me and actually I did this in class the other day I was I was defining uh, isomorphisms yeah you know, check this out here's an isomorphism it right was very visual I didn't even have to turn on the computer I was just using my hands That's right good. I've got like I've got some digits over here and yeah. I've got some digits over here and and you know, this is an audio podcast right. Oh crap! You, uh, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, uh, Professor Mandic is holding up his hands, his, his gnarled roots, uh, old man fingers, and uh, but uh, the radio listener grasps what uh, what what it means to put the the digits on my left hand into one to one correspondence. And that's how you know you have right the same hand. number of digits on both hands. Yeah, right. And so, right. like, but people don't say like, but I still don't understand it. Yeah, um, they're like they get it. So exactly. now, now let's talk about the the um, the integers. Yeah, uh, and it and it's you know pretty easy to to see see that you could put the integers into one to one correspondence with the even integers. Yeah. So one maps onto you just you know you just think of this as times two. So one maps onto two, two maps onto four, three maps onto six, and uh, and so, and by the way, like here's a puzzling thing about infinity: we've got an infinite set and another infinite set. That some some people have the intuitive pull; they want to say that the one is smaller than the other, right? Because the the set of even integers is a proper subset of the set of integers. But nonetheless, they could be put into one-to-one uh, correspondence. And that's right? how you and, know they're the same size. Yeah, but I don't see like we're not off to an infinite regress. Yes, we're talking about an infinite set in this case. With the hands, it was a there were finite sets. What um, I'm talking about is the uh, the that you can't put the real you can't put the real numbers you can't put the real numbers into a one to one correspondence with the with the uh, integers. Right. Yeah, the diagonalization so that, argument is that's a right. way so there of showing are, that. So then we have a larger size of infinity, an uncountable number. Right. But we could still put that uncountable number in a one-to-one correspondence with the next higher level of infinity, and then there would be more left over. So there's a higher, larger number 
of infinite uh, size, infinite size, by which you could sort of mark or index the one which is already un uncountable. So I'm not talking about a, and and there is an infinite hierarchy of higher, uh, larger and larger cardinal numbers. Yeah, but I don't see um, how that's a regress. Well, because it never stops. <laughs> what do you mean? It's, no, it's but a, but a regress is when you're when you're asking for an explanation and then you don't actually get the explanation. You were just saying by how could you keep track of this thing? And you, I said you invoke a higher a higher level thing that has more units in it by which to index those lower order things. Well, it wasn't. And then you said, well, how do you keep track of that? I said, well, there's a higher order thing. You're you putting said, words oh, in my mouth. I didn't say keep track. Cantor numbers. I didn't say keep track. To index them, to mark the passage. I said, you know, I, I want to know in what consists the passage of time. This is one succeeding one, the other. What is? It's analogous to the successor relationship. It's the it's it's the it's the it's the relation of being next, <laughs> being after. You know, that's what we a theorists like to say. It's after. Now, what rate does after occur? That's what you are. That's what the cider question is. What's the rate at which after or next? Um, uh, comes. Yeah, what's the rate? And so that might be a it might be a meaningless question, or you might be able to make sense of it in terms of a in terms of a higher level, um, a, a hyper time. Or now, by analogy, I was saying the same way you can make sense of the cardinality of these numbers in terms of uh, by talking about it from a, a higher cardinal cardinality. But and that I give you the tools so, to then say what's going on at the lower level, and it never stops. So I want to know about the the cardinal the cardinality of the integers, yeah, and the and the cardinality of the of the even integers. Right. I don't need to appeal to any higher cardinalities. Right. So so if Cantor you know if Cantor just you know introduces set theory and starts off with the car the cardinality of these countable sets and then stop there, I wouldn't be like, oh, I still don't get it. Right. Right. He didn't. He didn't need to get into higher cardinalities for me to understand what the cardinality of the even integers was. Right, but he did in order for you to understand what the cardinality of the reals is. Ah, but but he didn't need to do it for me to understand the cardinality. So in order to understand the lowest level cardinality, there doesn't have to be an appeal to the higher level cardinality, right? Right. Well, then I win. I win this argument because well, uh, that's a disanalogy to the to Sider's hypertime argument. It's He's not because you're not trying to understand the lower level cardinality. You're trying to uh, uh, count it. No, but you're, <laughs> you're, trying no, you're, to trying give a, you're trying to give a sense in which one is after the other one, how it proceeds in an order. You're trying to, but, but look in the in the in the time case, you're trying to understand what is the flow of time, and you say, okay. well, it's changed with respect to hypertime. And you're like, well, yeah, but what's hypertime? Doesn't it flow? And what? Well, that's one like, possible well, answer. The other possible answer is that's a meaningless question. So I want to make sure that we understand that you know you're. It, it, you don't, it, it, you could pull a Hume here and simply say the series is just this, the the existence of the series is the explanation of the series. There's nothing left over. It's just it proceeds at that rate. That's it. Um, or you could even say there is no set rate. I'm not against that. I think that the rates could be variable. I think that it's if you're moving faster than me, your rate might be different than mine. Um, so there doesn't have to be an objectively correct uh, met. Time a metric at which you know time passes. Although it would be, I Wait, mean, Newton. So this is a very Newtonian question because Newton definitely had this idea that there was pure mathematical, absolute mathematical time was preceded at a sort of. Wait, can you say more about the first option? The first option being on the Humean, or it's like a you just say that's uh, a meaningless question. You say more yeah. about that. 
Uh, well, I, you know, I take it that it's by analogy to what he says of the cosmological argument, um, whereby you say what's the what's the explanation of the uh, of the series of contingent beings, and he says the explanation is that each contingent being was caused by the previous contingent being, and then you say yeah, but what explains the existence of the whole series, and he says. Well, that each member of the series was caused by the previous member of the series, that explains the existence of the series. So you... i got to read up on my Hume. Okay. <laughs> I didn't know. Oh, man, there's a big giant hole in my Hume. What, what do you mean? Maybe I'm reading yeah, It's just not Hume? Oh, I'm, no, I'm sure... not trying to raise an objection. Uh, that, oh. that probably is Hume. I just, uh... This is like from the philosophy of religion debates, uh, the way I think that, you know. Yeah, the if you Hume ask me objection. what does he say... What does Hume say about the cosmological argument? I say, oh, fuck. I bet he said something. But I don't remember <laughs> what it was. Okay. Um, well, okay, so, you know, and this, the people have written about this, I think, and maybe this is a reconstruction of it. He probably doesn't put it in exactly that way. But, but anyway, so whatever, whoever said that, what, so what, why, why can't you just take a similar kind of that's a meaningless question um, response to, to, to your demand for an... Um, uh, uh, a rate at which time passes. I mean, it's not, yeah, it's... So... Look, because look, you might ask this question, too. Uh, the natural numbers, at what rate do they succeed each other? Well, I don't know. Two comes after one. Three comes after that. But at what rate, you say to me? Well, I, is that a meaningful question for the natural numbers? No, there's a succession of them. So we started with this. I asked you um, if... if Because you're, you're playing a presentist today, right? you got the presentist hat on. And, uh, yeah, 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 sure, I sure. Said, well, don't, do you think that time flows? Because a lot of presentists, they, they say part of their case is that... We demand that time flows. We demand it. We want flow. <laughs> we demand nothing but maximal flow. When do we want it? Now. We want it now. Wait, wait, now. Wait, now. Wait, we now. We want everything now. Well, really what we want it, though, is continuously. I mean, look, that's the, that's the beauty of differential equations is that they capture this idea that it's continuous. What That's what... I mean that's really the idea. It's it's a a passing from a continuous continual passing from then to now, and that the the the, the difference between now and then. Do you know what the man's saying? Those are crossed with the red dot. This is dialectics. It's very simple dialectics, one through nine, no maybes, no supposes, no fractions. You can't travel in space, you can't go out into space, you know, without like, you know, uh, with fractions. What are you going to land on, one quarter, three eighths? What are you going to do when you go from here to Venus or something? That's dialectic physics, okay? Dialectic logic is there's only love and hate. You either love somebody or you hate them. Uh, uh, when you, with this, this option where you say, like, this is a meaningless question. Yeah. Does that include the question of whether time flows? No, it flows. I think it's the question of whether it, uh, the, what, if there's a rate that it flows at, that might be meaningless. I or see. not meaningless, but not objectively settled. Um, hmm. You know, relativity is weird. But, you know, I also think that it's important to point out that relativity theory um, is going to look different by the time we figure out how to deal with quantum gravity and whether it looks like string theory or whether it looks like something else, like quantum loop gravity, or if that's even still a real thing. I, I think it is. But anyway, so, you know, my money's on string theory. It, it has been. I've always been a fan of string theory since, you know, um, uh, high school, actually, when I first heard about it. Uh, so, you know, I think that there's something... And, and, and for me, the big thing about string theory was always that strings are extended objects. So, 
you know, point particles always bothered the shit out of me, and I never understood how people could seriously say that the physical world was composed of point particles. By the way, <laughs> I agree with you, but I'm also reminded of that Colin McGinn book about physics. Oh, I don't, yeah. You've heard about it, right? It's one of, uh, yeah. He, he had a couple books that got, like, ripped in yeah. reviews. I read the reviews, but I mean, I don't know Colin. I don't, yeah, I don't approve it anymore. But anyway, the uh, but but one of the things he gets ripped on in this physics book is he's talking about um, how theoretical physicists have really overlooked uh, the question of what the shapes of the particles are. And the reviewer <laughs> calls this Colin McGinn's lucky charms theory of physics. <laughs> exactly, they've stolen me lucky charms. <laughs> They're always out to give me lucky charms. <laughs> oh, that is classic. But look, no, strings are extended objects. Um, they're one-dimensional objects, and it's not a mystery how you get more dimensions out of one dimension. It is a mystery how you get any dimensions out of zero dimensions. <laughs> so, I mean, anyway, so anyway, so that's the thing that attracted me to string theory was that uh, more than that it explained gravity. And although people like Edwin, and I take that seriously, you know, some I don't know how people feel about this, but... Some people say string theory has never made any empirical predictions, and Ed Witten, you know, he's famously made the comment that it did make a prediction. It predicted gravity. It just predicted it after we already discovered it. But that if you rem if you theorize or, or imagine a hypothetical um, a society like a race of aliens, they could have discovered string theory first, and then they would have predicted gravity as a result of string theory, and that would have been, you know, it just so happened we got that that gravity was the first force that we really got mathematically serious about. And, you know, I, I don't know. Some people think that's in, not so great. So I say, I don't know. I, I think I can make sense of what Witten's saying there. So I think string theory does have um, that going for it and also the dimensionality and some other stuff. But anyway, so, so and if, if string theory is right, then like I was saying earlier, then space might not, space-time might not be fundamental, at least not in the Minkowski space-time manifold sense, which you have a, a combined joint fabric of space and time. Um, if space really is an emergent property, but time isn't, then they come apart. And I'm not saying that's the way things are, or even that string theory is committed to that, but I'm saying that that's one possibility. Uh, and it, and it, if that were the case, then um, yeah. So anyway, and also I think that you know, simulations give us a really good way of making sense of how there could be hypertimes and, and other things like this. So it's perfectly, I mean, we do this all the time. We run simulations at very slow speed. So, you yeah. know, they, they had this deep blue um, mouse brain that now has led to the human brain um, project or whatever, you know. And so they, they simulated like one uh, um, a cortical uh, column or something like that, you know, of, like a less than 100 um, nanoseconds of neural activity. And they did it, but it took them like a week or something. I mean, I forget. I, I should have looked this up again. But it took them a long time. And it's going to be the case that if we ever do fire up the human brain project, probably it'll be running a brain at like, you know, one quarter speed or one yeah. eighth speed very slowly. So, and how do you make sense of that? Well, you make sense well, of it by saying that, you know, the rate of time in the simulation is passing at a different rate with respect to the time outside the simulation. There's, a, there's some so, thought experiments I want to run by you. Okay. It's one of my favorite things ever. So there's, you know, I mentioned <laughs> in uh, one of our previous um, uh, conversations uh, of this Greg, Greg Egan, Australian science fiction author, and he's got this book called Permutation City, which is all about simulations and people living within simulations within simulations. 
Right. Er, early in the book, there's this scientist who's running a simulation of himself, and he's doing this experiment about the phenomenology of time in, in a simulation. So um, he wants to see if there's any phenomenological difference from the point of view of the simulated version of himself with respect to different ways of running the simulation. The first thing he's doing is like slowing it down and speeding it up. Okay. And intuitively, it's like, yeah, right, of course, it's not going to seem any different from the, um, from the oh, inside. Oh, is this where you get your slow down, switch down, slug, yeah. switch fast or whatever that yeah, stuff? Yeah, yeah. Is that where we're yeah. going here? Uh, no, that's not where I'm going with it, though. The oh, really interesting part of the thought experiment is um, when, he, when he starts really messing with, with what's going on in the, uh, the outside the simulation, when he is running the simulation backwards. So right. from, the, from the outside point of view, the simulation is being run backwards. You know, there's a lot of computations that are reversible. Right. You can, you can run them backwards and it's still the same uh, computation. Um, and physicists like to say that the physical world is reversible in that sense. So he runs it backwards, and uh, and then another thing that he does is he runs it out of order. So he like runs the you know the third chunk first and the the first chunk last. You know he parses it, in the, and um, and so that starts getting weird. I mean now yeah, my that's my intuition start. <laughs> some of my intuition say yeah right it doesn't it doesn't matter. Um, but you know matter like, for what for what though. For, for like the experience or from the yeah, would you, so you, would you always have the same phenomenology in all these situations so no matter how how slow the simulation is the phenomenology inside the simulation is always going to be the same right. how about if you run it backwards the phenomenology will won't be any different from when you ran it forwards from the it'll inside it's still forwards it'll be backwards uh, you say ah, okay so you're but, but backwards from the outside. It's backwards from the outside, but on the inside, it's still it, it's just the same. So yeah, but that's the, the whole point about this hyper time and, and these kinds of outside. But, but, inside but, but, wait a minute. I just want to be clear what your answer is. So so in the story, um, at the end of each uh, experiment, the 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 guy outside the simulation, he comes into the simulation, and says, "Okay, did you notice a difference there?" That's the end of uh, that was the end of experiment number thirteen. Was that the same as experiments one through twelve? So, he, so at the end of each experiment, he pops in and he asks the guy on the inside of the simulation, "You notice anything different this time?" Yeah. And every time he says, uh, "Nope, it, it was, it was, it was just the same." So and let me so get this question straight because I haven't read. I don't know. Okay. I don't know if I'm answering a if they, you're trying to do a bait and switch and a, a hook and a sucker on me here. So no, actually, honestly, um, uh, honestly, this is. But not you know, you know, my view about this stuff is that all these stories are either. Described to the point where they beg a question or under-described to the point where it's not answerable. So I, I think that um, the use of these kinds of stories is intuition pumping at best and mongering at worst. But that's a different story. That's a different question. So let me, so let me ask you, though, what we're talking about here. Yeah. So let's suppose that you say, okay, Richard, we're doing the experiment right now. And here's the experiment. You're going to um, pick up this jar of delicious sun tea. And then you're going to reflect on the taste experience you have, sweet, with the taste of black tea. So I yeah. can taste that. Yep. And then you're going to do that several times in a row, you say right. to me. And I'm going to ask you each time whether um, it's the same or different as before. So that's yeah, the setup. Phenomenologically. Right, right. That's exactly the setup. Okay. Now, can I, before we go to the thought experiment, can I just tell you that in real life people are terrible at this? 
um, and that there is something uh, called choice blindness, um, which is related to our favorite thing called change blindness. But I was just reading a paper about this actually this morning. What? Uh, um, so it's fresh in my mind. But yeah, I don't uh, know what choice blindness is. So it's it's where you have people taste things. Like let's say you taste pudding. Uh -huh. You taste tapioca and um, or dark chocolate and light chocolate or two. two I mean, they taste bit, they're different things. So let's just say pudding because I am in the mood for pudding. Um, uh, vegan pudding, please for me. So uh, now you taste it and then you say which one you like better. So you rate your preferences. Yeah. Um, and then because these are psychologists and they're sneaky, <laughs> what they do is they come back to you and they say, "Oh, right, you know." Um, uh, you, we see that you rated these, but we made a mistake. We need you to rate them again or whatever. I forget the details, but they say you need to rate them again. So the subjects are under the impression they're rating the same stuff, and they give them the same containers. Like it, it'll be a, a container with a blue lid and a container with a green lid. But unbeknownst to the subjects, they've switched the contents. So now there's and, – and while they're saying, here, this is the one that you previously before said that you really liked. Can you taste it again and, and just remind us what you really liked about it? But really, they're tasting the one that they said they did not like. <laughs> and yet, guess what? They don't notice it. And some uh -huh. of these are weird. Like one of them is like equivalent to the difference of like strawberry jam versus peach jam, which is like how can you not notice that that has been switched? Now, they don't get the visual cues because they're in this kind of closed container, and they're just going off a taste or whatever. Yeah. Um, but if you ask them, now, what was it you liked about this, they start saying stuff, but it's, the, it's the, the one that they said they didn't like previously. So they seem not to notice that this is that there's been this switch. Um, there's been this switch here. So I don't know. Does this matter to the story that you're telling? Because it, are these kind of judgments on the basis of a, an individual in a situation like this? Uh, well, it's like a thought experiment, you know, like – yeah, I it's like, an intuition I, so I'm, This is what I'm getting at. There's a difference between the science and our just kind of going, oh, my intuitions are getting massaged over here. Yeah, I don't know. I like thought experiments. <laughs> okay, well, the, I, but, so, I like them. Let me, let me tell like, you uh, like about what I say about experiments. I say that if what you're saying is accurate and that if one case has run forward and the other case has run backwards, there has to be a difference from within the simulation that you would notice. But you wouldn't notice the slow down, whether the simulation was slowed down or not. No. So on the inside, it'll be the same. But if you do run it backwards, there'll be a difference. It seems intuitive to me that there were, that if you were – not that maybe as you were going through it, but later if you were asked, um, you know, what's happened first, your taste of the tea or your drinking it, you would come to a different judgment if it were run backwards. So now there's one way of, of, so, of, of saying that that intuition, the one that you just uh, reported, yeah. that intuition – is related to something that we were talking about earlier in this conversation today about distinguishing, separating phenomenology from the metaphysics. Of Absolutely. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so that intuition is that there has to be some kind of tight connection between the phenomenology of time and the metaphysics of time. That you yeah. can't have the reality be going backwards and the phenomenology be going forward. Well, no, that's not right. You can't have the reality going backwards, but the representations of it... Um, uh, I mean, look, if, if this is really right, then your representations are all sort of, they're indicating this one was caused by that one, this one came after that one. And if you're having them in reverse order, it's going to seem weird. No, it's on, not. On, it's reflection, on reflection, it's going to seem weird. That, no, it's going to seem not? the same. At, at any given moment, so we just, we, we, we pick a moment uh, in, the, in the simulation and, and compare it to its um, corresponding moment right. in, the, in, the for, in the forward simulation. But in each... In each moment, 
the representations have the same content. They, they each have the content that I, I, I was just having a migraine, but I'm not having a migraine anymore. Um, it doesn't matter whether in reality the next representation is going to be a representation of a migraine versus a representation, another a representation of their no longer having been a migraine. At that moment, they're the same representation, and they both have the content that the, that the, the migraine was in the past. Um, it's just that in one of them, oh, in reality, is, that, is that the half hour? Phew! Saved by the bell. <laughs> oh, you don't have to answer my question. <laughs> saved by the bell. No, I know. I get. I get what you're saying. You know, I'm wondering. I started wondering, like, how much of this is is, you know, uh, so this is a kind of a, quiv a a kind of similar thought experiment to the, to the. Uh, I guess I would say to the. Uh, Dancing and fading qualia thought experiments. Yes. And I guess what I would say is that, yeah, while if I if that sounds like really fucked up and um, therefore uh, probably not the way the actual world is, but yeah, and I guess I would be forced to say something like that. Yeah, you wouldn't, you couldn't tell. Right. Even, even though that seems that that my strong intuition that seems strongly fucked up would lead me to believe. That's a good reason to think it's not actually happening, although it's not impossible. But I don't know. Yeah. yeah. So I, I would. Yeah. That's that's. Thought experiments are useful for making you on that one. Thank you for listening to Space Time Mind. For more info about today's episode, as well as info about our video series and other supplements, check out our website at spacetimemind.com. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your comments on Twitter at spacetimemind99 or on our blog at spacetimemind.com. And please rate us on iTunes to help spread the word. Until next time, this is Pete Mandic saying this is the way the fucking world ends. Look at this fucking shit we're in, man. Not with a bang. Whimper. And with a whimper, I'm fucking splitting, Jack. <laughs>